Welcome to episode 14 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 29, Calum's Cove, March 17, 2305. Otto and Rachel arrived at the clinic mid-morning and were greeted by medical staff wearing professional expressions. In moments they were standing in the medical bay. One of the amber lights from the day before had gone green, but the one continued to flash red, while the remaining lights were still amber. Here's the situation. He's going to survive this, the ranking medical person said with detached professional calm. Otto could smell the tension in her. But there's a catch. What is it? We don't know how far the neurotoxin collapse ate into him. We got him on the acetylcholine inhibitors as soon as he came in, and he's shown some good response to the MEK treatment to try to foster dendrite regeneration already. That's the good news. The bad news is, it looks like it got as far as some brainstem function. Rachel looked at her. So you're telling me he can survive brainstem damage? His autonomic system seemed to be intact. His heart beats on its own and his lungs work. Beyond that, it'll take a lot of testing to determine exactly what, if anything, is wrong with him. I'd expect some rehabilitation will be required as well, she said gently. The tone rang subtly wrong in Otto's ears, but Rachel nodded. Okay, well, when can he come home? We need to keep him in the pod for another day, maybe two, to make sure we've got the toxins stopped. The only way we can control the damage is to keep the acetylcholine inhibitors blocking new damage while we flush the toxin out of his system one molecule at a time. Can we speak to him? Let him know what's happening? Rachel asked. The medico shrugged. To do that, we'd have to open the pod, which means we have to interrupt the inhibitors, and that means potential for new damage. As long as that telltale is red, we shouldn't interrupt the treatment. Otto looked at his mother and then back to the medico. Can she sit with him? He asked. Rachel looked at him in surprise. Yes. Can I sit with him? She repeated. The medico shrugged. Certainly, but there's no need to, really. He won't wake up until we wake him. We'll certainly call you first. I'd like to sit here, if I wouldn't be in the way, Rachel said more firmly. The medico shrugged again. Sure, pick a chair. We'll tell you if we need it. And she smiled. I'd be going crazy if this were my husband. You're doing very well. I am going crazy, Rachel said quietly. You just don't see it. She took the chair nearest the pod and rolled over so she could sit with her hand on the smooth case. She looked up at Otto and smiled. Can I bring you anything? Tea? Something to eat? He asked. She shook her head. Not just now, Otto. Thank you. I'll just rest here for a bit. You go on, though. He smiled at her and nodded. I'll be back around lunchtime, he told the medico before walking back to the cottage. He didn't enter the cottage proper, but went directly to the shop. He lit the stove and stoked it up to a small blaze. He wouldn't be there long, but he wanted to take the chill off. His half-carved gall was resting on the bench, and he settled down with it and worked on freeing it from the stick. He smiled at it encouragingly, thinking of the broad reaches of open ocean to the south and the long journey the gulls made twice each year. In less than a stand, he had freed the gull and found a lovely bit of purple shell for the inlay work. He worked it carefully into the wood, and then tucked the gall into his pocket for later. He checked the sun and found that there was still time before he would meet his mother, so he picked up the gather bag and his staff and headed for the beach. 
It was a sunny day, and the tide was right for a short gather. Banking the fire and closing the dampers, he left the shop and headed for Sandy Long. The breeze from the ocean carried a freshness, a sense of greenness, that it hadn't in the depths of winter. The summer was not far away, and the short spring season was racing by. The morning frost had burned off long ago, and the beach stretched out before him. He struck out at a leisurely pace, letting his path swerve from stick to shell, from rock to wood. Several small bits of wood and shell went into his bag. As he walked, his thoughts went to his father. He was almost amused to notice that he thought of him, not as he was, locked helplessly in the pod in the clinic, but rather as he must have been, walking along beside Grandfather Benjamin on this very beach. Otto had seen pictures of his grandfather, so he could almost envision the rangy youth that his father had been. There was a photo of the two of them hanging on the wall in his parents' bedroom. His father wore a broad-brimmed hat pushed back off his face and a leather coat. He was smiling from under a full head of hair. Grandfather Benjamin was the color of oiled wood, with an ivory smile and shockingly white hair down to his shoulders. He was smiling and his eyes crinkled in a way that made Otto feel good whenever he saw it. They did look alike, a bit, he thought. Grandfather's mouth and chin were echoed in the youthful father. The shape of the head was not obvious in the picture, but was apparent now. He could almost see their echoes walking ahead of him down the beach, almost hear their conversation still riding the ocean's breeze. How do you know which one to take? You just pick up the pieces that speak to you and leave the rest. But how do you know? You have to listen to the world, Richard. That's what a shaman does. Otto imagined the residual frustration was almost palpable in the wind, or maybe he was only confusing it with his own experience. An oddly shaped bit of wood caught his eye and he picked it up, holding it to the light and turning it. At first he didn't know why it had attracted his attention, but then he saw the figure in it and grinned broadly. There you are, he said to it. He brushed the loose sand from its surface and, smiling, slipped it into his pocket. He looked out to see at a line of gulls fishing along the shore, then turned back to the cottage. He got back to the clinic just before noon. His mother was where he'd left her her head down on the pod, her eyes closed as if sleeping. As he walked up to the entrance of the cubicle, she spoke without opening her eyes. I can almost hear him, she said. Who, father? Otto asked gently. No, she said with slight confusion in her voice. Benjamin. The medico heard them talking quietly and came over. You really don't need to sit there, she said. That can't be comfortable. Rachel smiled and stood up stroking her hand gracefully down the side of the smooth pod. No, she agreed, it isn't, but it is comforting. The medico smiled. You can go home, she suggested again. We can call you. He's making progress, but we're not going to open the pod until tomorrow at the earliest. Otto noticed that another amber light had turned green. He's getting stronger, he said. The medico looked over the instrumentation one more time. Yes, his vitals are good. The brain functions are well within parameter. We're still picking bits of toxin out of his tissues, but the dendrite regeneration is actually going very well. It usually takes much longer to get going. Come on, Mother. I'm hungry. I saw the special at Rosie's as shepherd's pie today, Otto said. Oh, your father loves her shepherd's pie. He'll be so jealous to find out what he missed. She replied with a sad little giggle. Her stomach growled loudly then, and she laughed for real. I suppose I'd better eat, and that does sound lovely. Otto held his arm, and she took it with all ceremony. 
Otto faced the pod and said, We'll be back, Father. Don't go away. The medico laughed, and even his mother chuckled a bit. As they walked to the diner, Otto asked, What does he say? Rachel looked at him blankly for a moment before she realized he was referring to her comment about Benjamin. She shook her head. I don't know. I can't really hear him. After a moment, she added, He was a tremendously patient and wise man, Otto. I wish you could have met him. Otto smiled and murmured, I do too, mother. I think it would have helped. At the diner, the subdued air wasn't any more subdued for their presence. Everybody there felt the effect of having one of their own small community in the pod. Having Rachel and Otto among them didn't evoke any additional anxiety. Rachel found it comforting in a way to have the community around them, nothing overt. The atmosphere of shared pain removed the onus of having to mouth the platitudes, I'm sorry, and be strong, and I'm sure it'll be fine. They all knew about the boxfish. They all knew the fear, the pain, the anxiety. They shared it like the air, filled with the scent of herb, spice, meat, and wool. They didn't need to speak of it. Many of their friends stopped to say hello and to wish them well, quietly, respectfully, genuinely. Everyone knew that the next one could be them, or their loved one. The village was a large and perhaps slightly dysfunctional family, after all. Richard was no less one of them for being Rachel's husband and Otto's father. They all felt it. After lunch, standing in the lane outside, Rachel and Otto had to decide whether to return to the clinic or go back to the cottage. The chill sun beat down, casting more warmth here out of the wind. They didn't speak, didn't discuss it. It would be some small comfort to be at the clinic, but the buffers of pod, people, and medicine did little to provide comfort. Rachel decided that she felt closest to Richard at home. Without a word, she turned for the cottage, dragging Otto in her wake, his staff rattling and thumping in a way that she found oddly comforting. Chapter 30, Aram's Inlet, March 18, 2305. Jimmy walked back into the office just after 8 a.m. The four-hour nap had helped, as had fresh clothes and a shower. Tony was there already, and he nodded to Jimmy, grunting his good morning. He was pouring coffee from a fresh beanery container on the work table and nodded at the box of pastries. Barney sent this over for us, he said. Figured we'd need it. He's right, Jimmy agreed pouring some of the hot coffee into a mug, and starting on one end of a Grand Apple Danish. He stood in the middle of the room and surveyed the charts, maps, and photos all around the walls. He chewed methodically through the Danish and the information. Sipping his coffee, he tried to let the whole thing just sort of percolate. Did we find anything, Casey asked as she came through the door, looking devastatingly awake in fresh blouse jeans and a pullover fleece. Her hair was still damp from her shower, and she had a wide-eyed alertness that left Jimmy envying and admiring in equal measures. Fresh coffee in Danish, Tony said, but fishing grounds? No. Oh, we found some new banks yesterday, I thought, Casey said, filling her cup and trying to look at the walls and not overflow. There's a bit there, Jimmy said thoughtfully, but on the grand scheme of things, not enough to matter. Well, Billy had good data from the fisheries model, at least, she pointed out. Jimmy snorted. Yeah, we can only fish 12 boats a day on the pumpkin. That gives us a dozen or so more we could use somewhere, if we had somewhere else to use them. 
Tony slumped in the chair, cradling the cup between his hands and inhaling the warm steam rising out of it. It's right in front of us, Jimmy. We can't see it. Jimmy sighed. Yeah, I got that feeling, too. Casey asked, can we get him back here? Who, the old man? Jimmy asked. She shook her head. No, Billy. He ran all the numbers last night, Jimmy said. We can redirect about a third of the fleet to fresh grounds if we can find some place to send them. He left a list for how many boats we can fish every one of the banks and grounds in the database. Jimmy sipped his coffee and shook his head slightly. He's a clever kid. He figured all this out from writing a game, Tony asked. Casey grinned. Yeah, it was pretty cool, too. That's why you should get him back here. We might be able to use his game to fill in the fisheries model with the boat characteristics and figure out how many boats we need to make the quota based on his new projections. Jimmy blinked a few times, trying to wake up. We sent him home around 2200 last night. If he's smart, he's sleeping in. Carruthers burst through the door then. Boxfish poisoning in Callum's Cove, day before yesterday. I just got the report. Tony blanched. Casey cursed in a most ladylike and delicate fashion, if the lady in question were a longshore fisherman, which she was. Jimmy asked, who? Alan said it's the village shaman. What? Jimmy asked, Krug? I didn't know he was a fisherman. Carruthers glanced at Tony. He wasn't until this quota thing came up. He was one of the few people they could put up as crew for the new boats we sent last fall. They were out on Kelp Bank, and he got tagged on the arm just above his glove. Jimmy sighed. That's dreadful. Well, does his wife need anything? We'll cover the funeral, of course, but anything she needs? Is she an employee? No, he's alive. And just brushed the skin, and the air rescue flitter got him ashore in time for treatment, Carruthers said. You're kidding, Jimmy exclaimed. That's the first bit of good news I've heard for a while. He's going to be okay, Casey asked. We don't know, Carruthers admitted. Alan says he's getting out of the pod tomorrow. Medicos are being cagey about it. Medicos are always cagey. If they don't tell you nothing, they can't be wrong later, Tony snorted. Thanks, Carruthers. Keep us posted, okay? Jimmy said. Carruthers nodded and headed back down to HR. Well, that's a kick in the pants, Casey said into the awkward silence. A shaman, too. Jimmy shrugged. People with nerves, just like anyone else. Jimmy, there aren't any more grounds, Tony said, after several long ticks. Where the hell are we going to get the fish? I don't know, Tony, Jimmy sighed. I don't know. Call Jake, have him send Billy up again. Let's see if his game can help. Casey smiled. I bet it will. While they waited, Jimmy called up all the satellite scans that he'd asked Janie Pritchard for. He dimmed the lights and projected them onto the wall to see if the larger scale would give them any better insight. Halfway through the second one, Billy walked through the door. You want to see me, Jimmy? he asked. Tony brought the lights back up, and they all sat down with fresh coffee and danishes. Here's my problem, Bill, Jimmy said. I'd need more grounds for the boats to fish on if I'm going to make the quota. I can't find any more grounds. You studied the database to make your game, right? Billy shrugged. Yeah, but it was just a game. What kind of fish can we catch that aren't on the grounds? Jimmy asked. Are there any fish stocks in the database that are commercially viable, but we're not fishing for now because we're too busy dragging? Billy pondered for a few ticks. Well, I never understood why we weren't harvesting the shellfish. We do, Tony said. Yeah, but only for local consumption, Billy pointed out. You can get clams, mussels, crabs, even a kind of lobster and a shrimp here. We don't take them in commercial quantities because, well, they take specialized gear. Jimmy agreed. Yeah, clams are impossible. They're just not thick enough. But mussels? We could cultivate them. Why aren't we? Tony said, transportation. We take the fish we can transport. Mussels can be shipped, Jimmy said, even frozen. Might take a little more processing, but there are ways to do it. 
Shrimp would be a lot easier. Are there viable shrimp stocks? Jimmy asked. Why aren't we catching shrimp? Mostly it's gear changes, Billy pointed out. Different net, different rigging. It's a limited season. You have to get them when they're schooling up in hard shells. They shed in the early spring, so you really only have a short season, and it's in December and January when most of the boats are tied up. Nobody wants to be out in the open ocean during those blows, Casey pointed out. True, but these are coastal fisheries. We're talking within five kilometers ashore, not out in the open. I bet there's commercial populations right here in the inlet, he pointed out. Sardines and pilchards, too. Those are everywhere. They school up in the shallows here in the late summer. You can see them from the headlands, roiling the water for square kilometers. Why aren't we fishing these stocks? Is there no market? Jimmy turned to Tony. Well, there's market for shrimp and sardines, no problem, Tony answered. We've just been deep-water trawlers since the Combine started developing the planet. We've always specialized in the muda, abo-abo, whitefish, and the other ground fish we can get out on the grounds. And you learned all this from making a game, Bill? Jimmy asked. Billy looked a little uncomfortable and mumbled down into his coffee cup. Well, yeah, in order to make it more like real fishing, I got the fish population data from the Combine, along with the fisheries development model. I started looking around and realized we have all these other fish that nobody's fishing for. I added them into the game, but they weren't very popular. Casey spoke up. Yeah, the variety was amazing. This kinds of fishing I never even heard of in that game. Jimmy looked at Tony, who only shrugged in return. Okay, Bill, here's my problem, Jimmy said. I gotta meet an impossible quota. Yeah, I heard about that, Billy said with a grin. We've been running up towards 750 metric megatons with the current fleet. Some years a little more, some a little less. Billy whistled. That's a lot of fish. Yeah, well, this year we need 20% more. Billy blinked. 900 metric megatons? Jimmy sighed. Yeah. We feed a lot of people. It takes a lot of fish. That's why we spent the day and most of the night looking over the maps. We're trying to find new fisheries that we can exploit immediately, if not sooner. Billy shrugged. Well, not this year for shrimp and sardines, but they might add 50 to the mix based on the estimated stocks in the database. It was Jimmy's turn to blink. 50 what? Metric megatons. Billy replied without blinking. Maybe more, maybe less. We've never really gotten a confirmation on the population. Jimmy sat back in his chair and squeezed his head between his palms while he looked at the ceiling and counted to ten. Tony, he said, when he reached ten, would you take Bill down to Carruthers and get him on the payroll? Director of Fisheries Development. When we're done here. Billy looked startled. Tony just grinned, and Casey whooped. I'm a waterman, Billy, but you know more about the big picture of fishing on this whole planet than any eight fishermen I can think of, and that includes the old man. We need you. We'll make it worth your while. But we have to fill that quota by the end of October, and we really only have the draggers to do it with right now. Okay, Jimmy, how do we do that? I don't know yet, Bill, Jimmy admitted. I'm still trying to ask the right questions and get some meaningful answers. Basics, Tony said. Given the new production projections you worked out yesterday, how many boats do we need to work to make 900 metric megatons? Standard boat? Billy asked. Tony started to say yes, but Jimmy interrupted him. No. Use a real number for a stern trawler. 75 metric tons, Jimmy said. I need to know how many more boats your father needs to make. Can I borrow your terminal again? Billy asked. Jimmy jumped up from the desk and ushered Billy into the chair. Please, be my guest. Billy sat down and started slapping keys. How long do you think it'll take to figure out, Tony asked. Billy looked up at him. 42,000. What? Tony asked. 
42,000 boats, Billy said. That'll give you about 900 metric megatons by the end of the season. That can't be right, Jimmy said. Casey was looking confused and even Tony was startled. Bill, can you double-check that? See if you lost a decimal place somewhere? Billy shrugged and went through the calculations a little slower. They could see him double-checking and moving deliberately through the calculations. He sighed and said, no, no mistake, 42,000 boats. But Jimmy, Casey said, didn't you tell me we've got something like 80,000 boats in the fleet? Tony and Jimmy just stared at each other in disbelief. How? Billy just looked bewildered. Well, it's simple division. You need 900 metric megatons, and a boat can catch a little over 22,000 metric tons in a season. Divide it out with the real numbers, and it works out to 41,000. What with rounding and the actual landing capacities, I suspect it's not actually quite that many. Jimmy slumped into the side chair and just shook his head. But how, Tony asked, we've got 80,000 boats. They're barely bringing in 750 now. Well, yeah, Billy said, but you had me calculate the yields without the summer slump and how many boats it would take to fish all season without the yield falling off. We did the calculation for the pumpkin yesterday. Fifteen boats a day on the pumpkin instead of thirty. Yeah, something like that, Tony said. All right. With the summer slump, a boat brings in about 6,000 metric tons a season. Without it, they bring in 10,000. If you fish 30 boats on the pumpkin, you wind up with 270,000 metric tons at the end of the season. If you fish 20 boats at the end of the season, you'll have 430 metric tons. He shrugged. The hard part is in the model, assuming it's right. The rest is just figuring out how much you want and how many boats it'll take to catch it. Well, there has to be some theoretical limit, Tony objected. Oh, yeah, 80,000 boats works out to be just under 2,000 metric megatons, Billy confirmed. You only need the grounds to support them. That's more than double, Tony exclaimed. Billy just shrugged. With the number of boats we have now, that's what the model says, but you need the grounds to support them, he said again. What about the other fisheries, Billy? Billy shrugged. Depends on how accurate the model is. Coastal, non-schooling fish like jace, arval, pintos, they've got total stock populations approaching the muda and whitefish. Sardine, pilchard, and the other oil fish are maybe ten times that, but you don't want to overfish them. They're the primary food stock for the larger fish. Crabs and lobsters, they're probably the next biggest stock. Planet-wide, there's probably twice as many kilograms of crabs and lobsters as there are muda and whitefish. Even Jimmy blinked at that. Why aren't we harvesting them, he asked, the room at large. Casey grinned. I learned this one in the game. It's because they're too hard to catch, she said gleefully. Where a boat like the seahorse can take 80 tons of whitefish and muda a day, a crab and lobster fisherman be lucky to get two tons. Jimmy blew out his breath. Looks like we better tell your father to stop building boats, Bill, he said wryly. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia Perdion. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For a website and more information on the golden age, visit www.dorandis.org golden.